this little series uh, from the book of Exodus over the last weeks. And last week we had Ashmini from Vintage Santa Monica with us. And he took us through that Passover narrative. If you know the story of uh, Moses and the people, they, uh, after a whole period of time in captivity and slavery in Egypt, they are able to celebrate the end of that and they escape from Egypt. And if you know a little bit of the story from the Prince of Egypt or those joyful, amazing films, uh, you will know that the people celebrate Passover, they escape from from Egypt, they're actually chased for a while, but they managed to make it to freedom, passing through the Red Sea, where the incredible miracle, where God parts the Red Sea, they walk through the Red Sea, and suddenly they are completely free. But they don't actually end up in the promised land straight away. Uh, in fact, what happens is they take 40 years of wilderness, 40 years of preparation, 40 years to understand and journey with the Lord to get ready for all the things that he has for the nation um, of Israel. And today what I want to do is I want to pick up the story uh, actually about two weeks into the 40-year story. So just right at the beginning, two weeks after crossing the Red Sea, uh, and we're going to be uh, looking at a particular bit that God wants to teach the Israels about provision around thankfulness. And as we head into Thanksgiving week here in the United States, I thought it would be a really good moment um, to stop and to recognize and think a little bit more about what it means to be grateful, what it means to be thankful, what it means to live in the very blessings that God gives us as people. Um, and we're going to do it in a particular way, which is a way that largely people don't want to do, which is by talking about money. <laughs> And no one wants to talk about money in churches. Um, but it's a big deal, right? 44% um, of Americans before the pandemic said that the single biggest source of stress that they felt in their lives was uh, money. And in a place like LA, where the cost of living is so high, where work can be a bit irregular and unpredictable, um, where we've just gone through this pandemic, which for some people has been fine and some people has been catastrophic, I wanted to take some time to recognize the pain, the difficulties, the challenges of money, but also to look at God's vision for money, God's vision for generosity and provision. Um, and I'm always really excited to do it because, um, well, first up, this is a topic that the Bible has so much to say about. Um, there are 500 verses in the Bible, roughly, about prayer. There are 500 verses in the Bible about faith. There are 2,000 verses in the Bible about provision and generosity um, and money. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus tells are on this topic. In fact, one-sixth of all of the text in Matthew, Mark, and Luke all are around provisions, money, generosity. And I want to suggest it's, it's not because God desperately needs your money. It's not because God is short of money. The creator of the universe is doing okay. But it's because God knows the impact that this stuff has on the human heart. And I'm always also excited to talk about it because in my life over the last years, the last decades, I've seen God transform my life, transform my situation, transform my understanding, and bring me to an incredibly different, more joyful, more excited place about this. And I believe that God has a wonderful story for us to think about in this area. And so we're going to look together this morning at Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 30, which will be up on the screens. Exodus 16, 1 to 30, and Gina's going to read it for us. Today's reading comes from Exodus 16, 1 through 21. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, 
on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. Awesome. Thank you, Gina. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for the things that you have provided in our lives. We're so grateful for the Bible. And as we unpack it this morning, we pray that we would see a better, a bigger, a more joyful and holistic vision for money, for possessions, for blessing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Israelites are about two to three weeks into their journey. They have seen the most incredible miracle. You know, not that many people in their lifetime get to see God part a sea in front of them so they get to walk through it. But the Israelites see this miracle, they walk through it, and then, yet just two weeks later, they are angry. In fact, the technical term is they are hangry. Anyone else have hangriness in their house? Yeah, we have hangriness. They have not eaten enough food. And so they cry out and they basically say to Moses, this is not fair. 
This is not okay. We may have been in slavery. We may have been in captivity. We may have been beaten and treated really badly, but at least when we were in slavery and captivity, we had enough. We had food. We were in control of our own bodies so that we could eat whenever we wanted. And now we are not in control anymore. Now we are in big trouble and we don't know if God is good. And that's really the question that they're asking. Is God good? Will God provide? Will God come through? And I guess it's a question that we all face sooner or later in our lives. Can God be trusted to provide in our lives? And we're going to think uh, this morning about that question. And particularly, I'm going to grab my little flip chart, which I should have brought a bit nearer. still over here, which I used a couple of weeks ago. If you remember this one, if you were around. And uh, this I talked about as being a model that God often takes us through when we think about provision, when we think about blessing in our lives. That while we as human beings are often people at a particular moment in space looking to go up and to the right, you know, I want more, I want money, I want possessions, I want success, I want fame, that actually God often has this little journey for us to go through, which I talked about two weeks ago, of sacrifice and obedience and encounter and worship and calling and blessing. And I'm going to leave it there because you're going to see how when we talk about money or we talk about anything else in the Christian life, this basically still applies, and I'll show you um, how it works. So in order to introduce the conversation this morning, we have to understand one hugely important non-negotiable truth, which is this. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God, and he gives freely to us. This is the lesson that God is wanting to teach the Israelites this morning. Uh, you know, we're told all the time things like this. You know, you are where you live. You are where you work. You are what you uh, do. You are where your kids go to school. You are what you wear. Um, you can carry on. And if we look out on social media or out into the big world and we see someone who is really successful, who has lots of wealth or lots of followers, we assume that they didn't just find a load of Bitcoin down the couch in 2008, but actually we assume that they, 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 they deserved it. You know, they are the good kind of people in the world. They are the ones who must have worked for us. They are the ones who must have got it. They're the people who deserve the things that they've got it. When in fact, the Bible really gives us a very upside-down way of understanding these concepts. It actually starts with the provision that everything is God's first, and he gives to us. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12 says this, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, for you are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Now, that might initially seem a little bit unfair, because they're like, well, then if I sit at home and sit on Snapchat all day, and I don't go to work, and I don't do anything, then generally speaking, I don't have anything to live off, and so it doesn't work out really well for me. But you notice in verse 17, he goes on, you may say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But, verse 18, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You know, I often think when I'm giving a talk like this, gosh, what is it about me which meant that I didn't grow up in like a war-torn land? 
or in a place of famine and, and want? What is it that meant that actually I got to grow up in places like Hong Kong in the United Kingdom, places where I could get an education, places where there was healthcare, places where there was food and water? You know, in fact, if you look around the room, um, we together are some of the most already blessed, provided for human beings who have ever lived on the planet. And it's not by virtue of what may or may not be in your bank account, but it's by virtue of what we already have. We already have water, we already have electricity, we already have education, we already have healthcare. Most human beings who have lived before us and around us do not have those things. God has already provided hugely for us out of his abundance, out of his blessing, out of his kindness into our lives. Uh, J. John, who is a famous evangelist, tells this story, and some of you will have heard it before. But he tells a story of a guy who goes to an airport, and he's a little bit early for a flight. And so because he's got a few minutes to kill, he goes and buys a coffee and a little bag of donuts, of mini, those mini round donuts. And he sits down at a table. The only seat that's available is across from another guy waiting for a flight. And, you know, two guys, they're not going to talk to one another. So they both pull out their phones and start scrolling away. First guy takes off his coat, he puts it down, puts his bag down takes a sip of his coffee, and reaches out and takes a a donut from the bag and starts eating uh, from the the bag. The other guy across the table, he notices, he just smiles, looks up, and reaches out and also takes a donut from the bag. Now, the first guy is beginning to get really kind of like upset. It's like, who is this other man who is literally stealing my donuts in the middle of an airport? Like, what is going on in airports nowadays? And so just to prove a point, he he reaches out and he takes a second donut from the bag and he pulls the bag of donuts right the way to his edge of the table. So it's absolutely, completely clear whose donuts we're talking about in this scenario. The man across doesn't seem totally effaced at all. He, he just shrugs, he smiles, he reaches across the table and takes from the bag the last donut and starts to eat it. Now, the first guy is going inwardly completely crazy. Like, he's seeing red. He's thinking, this guy is completely insane. I'm going to do something about it. So he's literally just about to kind of shout and say something when the tannoy comes on and the flight is called. The man across the table stands up, puts his coats on, grabs his bag, and walks off down the concourse. The first man is just like inwardly completely apoplectic. He just thinks, I'm going to chase after this guy. I'm going to tell him what's what. And so he, he grabs his phone. He grabs his coat. He reaches down to pick up his bag. And as he reaches down to pick up his bag, he notices on the floor his bag of donuts. <laughs> that all the time, what he thought had been going on is that the other man was stealing his donuts. When in fact, all the time, the other man was sharing his donuts. And the point that J. John makes, which has gone down in history, is this. God owns all the donuts. God owns all the donuts. God owns everything. God is in charge of everything. When we have anything, it is because God has shared it with us. You know, sometimes we, we look, don't we? We look at our bank balances or we look at our apartments or our clothes or our cars or our phones and we think like, you know, like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. It's my precious. It's like, this, this is mine. It's like I just, if I just hold on to it, if I grab hold of it, if I keep it close enough to me, then no one will steal this thing from me. And we miss the very fundamental truth that everything you have is actually a gift of grace. It's a gift of kindness. 
whether it's the thing itself or it's the opportunities or the skills or the blessings that God provided in your life so that you could have that thing. You see, this is what the Lord is trying to teach the Israelites this morning. Here they are, out of control. Here they are in a place of pain. Here they are in a place where they feel like they do not have enough and they feel like it's unfair because they are having to live without. And yet God is trying to ask them the question, will you trust me? Will you love me? In fact, the word that is used in the passage this morning is a test that the Lord is doing for them to see if they will believe that God is good. Now, because God is good, because God provides first, actually, we have a response to make. It's not just that God does this randomly, but actually God invites us into a journey, a journey like you're going to see on the board this morning. Because God, because God created everything, he actually teaches to the Israelites a particular way that they are to understand provision. Um, for 40 years, we learn that the Israelites are on the move through the desert. They cannot provide for themselves. So for 40 years, God literally provides bread from heaven and he provides meat for them to have enough. But once they do get to the promised land after 40 years, suddenly they become farmers. They become business people. They're able to build community. They're able to have money. And when they do, God says to them, I want you to have something else in your life that will help you to remember that I am in charge and I give freely to you first. And what God does is he creates this concept called tithing. Now, tithing is just an old word. It literally means one-tenth. But effectively, what would happen is when the Israelites had a crop, when an animal was killed, when there was a business transaction, they would bring the first tenth of the crop. They would bring the first tenth of the money, the best, without question, without deduction. They would bring it to the temple, and they would put it before the priests. And the first part of that crop, that, that possession, that money, was used to provide for the temple. It was used so that the temple could operate. The second part was given so that the poor could have equality, so that no one would be without in the community. And the third part, which is documented throughout the Old Testament, was literally just burnt, burnt up in front of the community. I don't know how you would feel if you came to church this morning and put a $20 in the offering and I literally lit it up in front of you. I imagine you might be quite cross with me. But the point was so specific but it was to remind the Israelites that they were not in charge, that they were putting themselves deliberately in a place of sacrifice, but deliberately through obedience in a place of being without, even when they had, so that they would remember that everything is God's, that everything comes from God, that God wants to bless and do things, but it is God's first and foremostly. So tithing was primarily actually about giving away to put themselves back in a place of dependency on the Lord. Now, um, we probably uh, go, well, whew, good news. Good news that we are not in the Old Testament. You know, good news that we're not under the law, that this is not written into law for us anymore. Good news that we're under freedom and grace and all those kind of wonderful things. But sometimes we forget what Jesus had to say. Jesus tells 16 stories around this. And in one of the stories Jesus tells, he tells a story of two people who come to bring their tithe to the temple. The first guy, he's like this super rich, super wealthy kind of like uh, guy, this business guy, and he walks in with his tithe, which are these two sacks of cash, and he like puts them down in the temple, and probably there's a gasp of applause around the room as everyone thinks, wow, what a lot of money, what a difference that's going to make to the kingdom. 
And then behind her in comes this little widow with just two coins. It's two tiny coins worth very, very little. And the widow puts down the two coins. And the question that, God, that Jesus asks is, which one of these two has really understood provision? Which one has really understood encounter? Which one of them has really understood worship? And of course, the answer is actually the widow. You see, for the guy to come in and put down you know, 10%, to live off 90%, it doesn't really affect him. He doesn't really understand sacrifice. He doesn't really understand obedience. He's just getting on with it. But for the widow, what she done is bring 100%. She, in obedience, in sacrifice, has bought everything that she is. She has put herself at the very lowest, most vulnerable position in encounter and worship. And she has understood the very place that God speaks to about this question. You see, in our lives, we ultimately will always face the question, who do we trust? Do we trust ourselves? Do we build structures in our lives to make sure that we will become independent? Or do we put things in our lives to ensure that we are dependent upon the Lord? Sometimes when we talk in church about giving and offerings and things like that, we really are asking the question, what is the very minimum that I can possibly give away so that I can appease God and all the church? When in fact, the conversation, the invitation that the Lord gives is actually how much do we have faith for? How much of a place of sacrifice and obedience and encounter and worship are we prepared to enter into our lives to see what the Lord will do? Now, I may not have persuaded you yet that this is a really good thing, but I hope to. Because I want to show you that there are three specific things that happen as we come through this place of sacrifice and this place of obedience, that we come exactly as the Israelites are invited to this morning to encounter the Lord, to come before him, to see what he will do. And the three things are this. The first is that when we come in offering, when we give, when we tithe, when we sacrifice, The first thing is, God changes us. God changes us. Matthew 6, 21 says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, I don't know if it's just me, but this can be such a topic of stress and anxiety. As I said at the beginning, we can feel so overwhelmed, can't we, about the fact that we do not have enough. We can lay awake at night thinking, how am I possibly going to have enough to pay for that bill or to do that thing or the thing that I'm doing? And then when we get beyond that point, we then start to set up these things called idols in our lives. And if you don't know what an idol is, it's literally just anything you put up in the middle of your life and you bow down in front of it. You know, success or fame or possessions or house or cars or, you know, whatever it might be. And we pour everything we can with great anxiety and great passion into trying to provide for this thing. And so we worship it. We give everything we have to ensure that this thing remains in our life. When in fact, when we give, when we tithe, when we are generous with others, we're in fact putting those things to death and instead putting God in his rightful place in our lives. Richard Foster, who's written a brilliant book about this, he says this, we must dethrone money. We must laugh at it. We must give it away. We need to find ways to shout no to the God of money. We must engage in the most profane act of all, giving it away, because the powers that energize money cannot abide that most unnatural act of all, giving. 
See, when we give, when we sacrifice, when we come before the Lord in these ways, we, we are saying, God, you are first. You are in charge. You have provided for us, and we trust in you. And as we do, we find that our prides, our anxieties, our sense of entitlement, it starts to melt away. You know, you might go, well, why on earth would I tie one hand behind my back if I don't have enough to start with? Why would I tie a hand behind my back and have even less to try and provide for myself? Well, actually, what you find when you start to give is that you aren't tying one hand behind your back at all. You're actually taking one hand and putting it in the hand of the creator of the universe. And he is infinitely powerful and infinitely strong and infinitely trustworthy. As we go through sacrifice and obedience, as we come into a place of encounter and worship, we find that God meets us there. We realize the I am not, but I know I am, that we get to know the creator of the universe. So the first thing is he changes us. The, the second thing is that actually it's not just that he changes us, but he also changes the world around us. I also think from time to time, like, isn't it amazing that God chooses to use us in his kingdom plans? You know, that God who flung the stars into space, created infinite matter, that he would care enough to pick all of us to be on his team for the things that he wants to achieve in the world. Now, I, when I was a, a teenager, a young teenager, I, I hated church. Like, I hated being anywhere near it. I thought it was really boring. I just wanted to play football. I actually got kicked out of my church when I was, because I was so naughty. But, but the church that I became part of sacrificially employed a youth pastor. And the, the youth pastor through my whole teenage years you know, kept me on the straight and narrow, kept meeting up with me, saw leadership potential in me, loved on me, looked after me. Now, I'm so grateful to her. But actually, if I think about it, that behind her was a whole group of people who I don't know, who I will never be able to thank, who just quietly and sacrificially gave financially, who gave their tithe, who gave of their best so that the church could employ a youth pastor. I could say exactly the same for when I was a student at a relatively poor area in the middle of England. But I'm so spurred on in, in my life, in my giving and in Laura's giving to think that, gosh, one day somebody might say, I don't know who to thank. I don't know who it was who just quietly behind the scenes gave some money. And, and because of that, you know, that church was able to run alpha courses or hire a youth pastor uh, or, or do all the different ministries. And through that, you know, I came to faith. Or my family came to faith and my whole family line is now transformed and different because we have faith in Jesus Christ. And that right behind it all, it was just quiet, giving, tithing, giving away. Now the truth is, as a pastor, I have a way big unfair advantage here. And the big unfair advantage I have is that actually I do know a lot of the stories. In fact, there's almost never a week that goes past when we don't receive an email from someone in our church or someone online saying, I just need you to know how much my life is being transformed through the church. You know, I, I do hear the stories of the four Alpha courses that you guys and us have run together this year. 
I do know the stories of the people who have been baptized this year, of the baby dedications we've done, of the healings that have occurred, physical, emotional, spiritual healings. I do know the stories of the new community groups that are running around the place. I do know the stories of the four kids in youth groups that we're running. I do even know about the benevolence program, which you probably don't know about, where we are able to provide emergency relief funding to people who hit absolutely emergency situations in their life who cannot provide for themselves. I know about the partnerships that we have as a church in the areas of homelessness and mentoring and education. I know about the churches that are in the pipeline to be planted in the future. I know about the care that we provide together for mothers. I know about the staff that we have, and I know how much they live off, and I'm really grateful to them because I know how much that they have to live off. You know, I know that here at Vintage, we don't have sugar daddies. We don't have somebody out there who's going to fit our bills. I know that it, it comes to us. And so I have a huge advantage when I think about my giving because I consider it such an incredible privilege that the Lord would use me and he would use you so that lives, generations would be transformed in this city through what we do. There is this amazing invitation to share, to give away, to form equality and see that there is provision in the world. And that, by the way, I haven't got time to talk about this morning, but that's an incredible part of the, the manner provision is that everybody had enough. Everybody is to have enough. You and I, we are invited to be rivers of blessing, not lakes where we just store it all up and hoard it all and, you know, look fat. <laughs> I don't know. We are invited to give and give and give. Because actually, as we give, we get to invest and see the kingdom changed. But if actually it wasn't enough, if it wasn't enough that when we give, you know, our hearts are transformed and freed, if it wasn't enough that when we, we give, the world around us has changed, I see the third, and for me, absolutely mind-blowing thing, is that as we give, God blesses and he changes our situations. Notice in today's passage, what does God do? He rains down bread and meat. Now I realize in California, bread is not considered a blessing. It's considered a curse. I realize that. But for 40 years, God pours out blessing after blessing after blessing in their lives. And just notice how he does it. He does it supernaturally in a way that they couldn't have possibly engineered for themselves, he does it. He does it through very natural means, birds and manna, which actually uh, scientists think was actually some little substance that grew on some of the plants in that area, that he involved them in the process. They didn't sit around and it all just fell in their mouths and they sat there. No, actually, it says in verse 4 and 5, they gathered, they prepared, they worked in cooperation with what God did, and it was just enough. It wasn't too much. It didn't make them fat. He provided what they needed, where they needed. In fact, this is the very place where that little phrase, give us today our daily bread, that's where it originates. It originates from this passage. The amazing thing is that as we give, God blesses us. He blesses us incredibly. Um, in another time in Israel's history, if you fast forward through the promised land to a time when Israel was really struggling again, when they felt like they needed to grab hold, where they needed to hoard, where they needed to say, like, well, we don't have enough, so we're not going to give anything away. The prophet Malachi comes to God's people, and he says this. 
bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the flood grates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. This is the only place in the whole Bible where God specifically says, test me. Like, see what I'm going to do here. Put all your weight in this and see if I will not, he says, pour out so much blessing that you will not have any room to store the things that I am going to pour out in your life. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 9. God loves a cheerful giver which I assume to be somebody who is smiling and laughing and happy. Why? Because in verse 8 it says this, and God is able to bless you abundantly. There is in fact levels of blessing and things that God wants to do in your life which you cannot experience in any other way as if you are prepared to put yourself down here. In fact, the best news is ever that the further down here you go, the further down here you go, the more into a place of obedience, the more into a place of sacrifice, the more into a place of encounter and worship, the more God is able to pour out blessing in your life. The more and the more. And it's for one very simple reason. God is more generous than you are. God is way more generous than you are. You and I can never outgive God. Just take that in for a moment. You cannot outgive God because He is fundamentally more generous than you are. He's fundamentally more generous than I am. We think that to be, you know, prosperous or blessed. We need a great financial plan. We need a great story. We need to hold on to everything we have as much as we possibly can. Well, actually, well, God says, if you, if you really wanted any of those things in your life, then actually you would learn to get down here as fast as you can, because that's the place where God unlocks some beautiful things. Now, just in case you think I'm just making all this up, and I'm you know, just talking theology and not reality, I want to show you a little bit of our story. And um, I don't share it because we're perfect, because we definitely are not, Laura and I. We mess this up all the time. But it, it's been our story. This is real. Um, when I started to train at seminary in the United Kingdom, the deal that I had with my denomination was that I had to uh, stop all business relationships. I had to give up all sources of income. In fact, both of us did as a family. And in exchange, we would receive a little, what they call a stipend, like a little amount of money to live off every month. And the first thing that was very scary, if I'm honest, was the fact that the little amount of money was exactly equivalent to the mortgage on our little house. So I thought, okay, well, we will, we will have a roof. And we had a little bit of savings, and so I thought, well, we'll eat, we will eat rice, and we will be okay. And so we started to, to train. I started to train at seminary. But then it came to the question of what to do about our, our giving. Because, you know, Laura and I had always said in our marriage, you know, we wanted to be people who tithe. We want to give away the first and the best tenth of what we have. And to be honest, through most of the beginning of our married life, we had two professional salaries. We had really good salaries. You know, to, to live off 90% of two really great salaries was like, yeah, okay, it's fine. It's no, we can do that, that one. But then when I came to, to, to start seminary, I thought, well, what do I do about, you know, the money that we were giving to the church and a few different missionaries that we were supporting, a few different wonderful nonprofits? I thought, well, what do, what do I do? Now, I think the logical answer absolutely would have been to reduce all of those amounts to one-tenth of the new amount of income. That would have made total sense. And so that's exactly what I went to try and do. I sat one day at my computer, and I tried to change all the automatic monthly standing order money payments, and I couldn't. 
Like I literally could not, couldn't click the button. I was really trying. And so I thought, well, what would I do? I thought, well, what would any responsible person do? I know, not tell my wife, and I'll just leave it for a month. I'll do nothing, and I'll just see. And then if in a month's time we have no money, I will just have to say, Laura, I'm really sorry. I bankrupted us, but I'm going to change it now. So I left it a month. And do you know what happened after a month? We were fine. Left it two months, we were fine. And after three months, we were very much more than fine. Suddenly, like, bits of money just started to appear from all over the place. Like, it wasn't, literally, it wasn't like gold coming down the chimney or like those kind of things. But someone would write to us and say, oh, you know, you're a couple who are training and you're in this institution. Here's some money for this and here's some money for that and here's a, here's a grant that you can get for this. Before we knew it, we actually started to save money faster than we had any, ever saved money ever before. I mean, I really mean that. We were able to pay not just our mortgage once each month, we actually started to pay it twice each month. For the first two years of seminary, as a poor seminary student, I actually paid my mortgage twice every single month. And even at the end of two years, I actually had to go before Laura and say, Laura, we've still got a really big problem. Like, we're actually saving money fast to the point when we don't know what to do with it anymore. What should we do? And we sat down and we said, well... We better just give some more money away. And so we actually increased all the amounts of money that we were giving. It was completely nuts. And if you'd have ever looked at the bits of paper, it would have made no sense to you. But we just realized that God was being more generous than we were. Now, that isn't actually the end of our story. Because when I finished seminary, we moved to a different area. And in the different area, you know, Laura, by that point, she, she had two small children. She wasn't working at all. Uh, I just had a, a junior pastor's kind of salary, and I was looking after three churches outside London. And uh, I realized, to my horror, that my income now was really had gone right down, that my giving was still at this level, and worse still, I had to get up in front of the new church that I was part of and say to them, hey guys, we've got a massive building project to do. And in order for us to complete this building project, we're all gonna have to give some more money. And I thought, this is gonna be awful because I'm going to stand up there, and I'm going to tell them my story, and then I'm going to have to decrease my giving and not increase my giving, or I'm going to look like a terrible, bankrupt, pastoral fraud. And so I, I stood up just like this on a Sunday morning, and I said to them, right, guys, we're going to have to give more money. And I couldn't believe as I heard my mouth utter the words in front of them. And so we increased our giving again. And what did God do? Again. Out of nowhere, God outgave us. And every time in my life we have ever faced this, God has outgiven us. Because God is more generous than we are. As we give, as we put ourselves in this place of obedience, as we come before the Lord in worship, amazingly, astonishingly, we find that God does something incredible. Now, some people take this too far. They call this prosperity gospel. And they basically will tell you, if you put $10 in a church offering, it will turn into a million dollars on your way home today. You can try it. It might not work like that. But what I do know is that God is more generous than you are, that God is kinder than you are, that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine when we put our place, put ourselves in that place of sacrifice. And so as I finish, I, just, I do want to take a, a few moments just to tell you about Vintage. Um, I'm not going to be dishonest. This is part of our story. Um, 
if you've been around for a while, you will know that uh, Vintage uh, as a kind of Sunday congregation started at the beginning of January 2020. And actually, we've had an amazing uh, time over the last years. If you could put the first slide up for me, um, that would be greatly surround. If you, if you see that uh, green line, you will see that that, oh, that green line, that one's gone off. Okay, that one, look at that one, you'll feel better. Okay, uh, you'll, we see actually through the pandemic, because of generosity of people in our church congregation, we've actually been really well provided for. Um, on top of what we've received through our own congregation, Vintage Santa Monica have been hugely generous towards us and had us on a program to launch us to fund the life of our church as we get going together. And because of that, we've been able to have no debt as a church. And in fact, as we've come out of the pandemic, we've been able to put together a, a reserve for the life of the church into the future, like a, a healthy reserve, which is wonderful. And thank you because you've, so many of you in this room have been part of that story. But um, as we uh, finish off this year and we head into next year, we have got some things that are coming up ahead of us. The first major thing is that um, our funding from Santa Monica finishes. Um, it is, was always due to, and as we go into next year, we will become legally and financially independent as a church, which is exciting and scary. <laughs> And in order for us to do that, we actually have to hit some hurdles. The first one, you'll see that very scary looking point at the, on the yellow, which is for the year-end giving. In order for us to finish off 2021 and hit all our budgeted mounts and all the things that we need, to, our liabilities, actually, in our year-end giving, we need to be able to raise between us about $108,000, $108,000. Uh, and then beyond that, as Santa Monica giving drops off and we pick up the tabs, we've actually got more giving to find. About $15,000 a month, in fact, is the amount of money that we have to be able to find new giving into next year. Now, I will lie if I say I don't wake up in the middle of the night and think about that sometimes. But I believe that God is so good, that he is so faithful, and that is where we're going. Now, if you want to know a little bit about how our finances work as a church, you could have the next little pie chart slide. Oh, they've gone. Oh. They're coming back, they're gone, there it is. Just so you know, and if you wanna um, have a coffee with me, I'll happily talk some more about this. This is how the church works. 54% um, of our, our giving goes to ministry, goes to renting this facility, the offices that we have, pastoral staff in the life of the church. 15% uh, of our income goes to worship and tech and online and all of those kind of things. 17% um, of our uh, in, uh, income goes to worship, uh, goes to VKids and VYouth, so again, renting space, but also having a, a youth pastor and a VKids pastor here, which is great. And then actually about 14% of our income uh, goes to outreach, whether it's directly in homelessness, whether it's in places of partnership with Hamilton, with Door of Hope, with Stars, with Claris Health, whether it's to Alpha, and evangelism programs, about 14% goes, and if you want to see those amounts, you'll see them all up on the screen. Um, but it's a challenge, you know. I'm so excited by what the Lord would want to do. It's scary, uh, like the Israelites who forgot after two weeks that God had done amazing things. Sometimes I too forget that God has done amazing things. But I do want to, as we come to communion, just give us this opportunity to respond if, if you want to. Um, on your seats, uh, you will see uh, these little giving envelopes, and you'll even see a pen. And uh, there's a number of things that you, you might uh, want to do. If this is your church, if you're just visiting today, uh, enjoy visiting and sit back and relax. But if this is your church, the first thing um, you might want to do is, is just to think about uh, a year-end 
amount. The tax-deductible year amends amount's a big deal out here, isn't it? So you can think about a year-end amount. Um, the other thing that you can do, and I particularly want to offer this to those who are new and maybe you've never really got into tithing and all seems scary, is that you can actually just make a commitment to give a monthly amount. Um, now, to make it really easy for you, because I know it's scary, is that one thing you can do is actually go onto our website, and maybe we can have the giving slide up, Lisa, and that'd be great, and you can go and find the monthly giving challenge. Now, what the monthly giving challenge is, is just simply this. It's like risk-free giving. If you go on there and you commit to give a monthly amount for the next three months, at any point in the next three months, anonymously and without me or any of the staff here knowing, you can ask for your money back. You can have it back. All you have to do is send an email to Vintage Santa Monica office, and they will give you the money back. If you feel like God has not come through for you, he's not provided for you, you can get your money back. Our full expectation is that God will come through for you. And when we did this in the summer, I got sent a bunch of pictures of checks and all sorts of things that people were receiving in the mail because God had blessed them and come through for them. But you, if you have a look on the website, you will see the three-month giving challenge. But I just want to leave you with a moment of quiet. I've said many words, and it may be that you want to go home and you can't do this right now, but you just want to go away and think and pray on it and take me out for coffee and we'll talk numbers or whatever you need to do. But I just want to offer us a moment of quiet and peace, and we'll leave the giving slide up on, on the screen. And then in a minute, we'll come to a place of communion, and we will come before the Lord and worship on the cross. And we will um, also have offering stations where if you're ready and you want to fill this in now and you want to deposit in one of the boxes or go to the station at the back where there's credit card information and stuff, you can do that. But let's just take a moment of stillness and peace before the Lord.